Welcome to the Wellness Champions Network podcast. I'm host Sarah McGuinness. The Wellness Champions Network is a group of leaders from around the globe who are passionate about well-being. In the network, we learn, share and connect with colleagues and well-being experts alike. We believe that by working together, we can build a happier, healthier world where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. In this podcast, we're joined by Andy Hearn, well-being specialist at ARA. ARA is the largest vocational training institute in the South Island of New Zealand. In this interview, Andy shares how ARA developed its wellbeing framework and how this framework has been used to support staff through the COVID-19 crisis. We discuss the components of the framework and explore how the framework has enabled the organisation to develop tailored interventions that support staff to navigate this uncertain time. So my role was primarily, um, well, it's supposed to be exclusively around staff wellbeing rather than the student side of wellbeing, although I do tend to overlap a bit into students. So all the things I'm talking about today will be related to a staff wellbeing um, program. So yeah, there was things like the Great Race, there was a bunch of on-site um, physical activity options, so um, yoga, Zumba, a couple of circuits, uh, those, so about six or seven things running each week uh, at our main campus. We have six campuses, um, three in Christchurch and one in Ashburton, Timaru and Omaru. Uh, so the bulk of our staff and therefore the bulk of what I've been focusing on has been at the in Christchurch mainly and particularly at our city campus. Um, you know, there's other things like Pink Shirt Day, Wellbeing Quiz, um, those, those sorts of things. So it, more like events really. So would you describe it, yes, as, as a series of um, initiatives at events but not necessarily well tied together? Yeah, and certainly not at a no real strategic focus on wellbeing, a bunch of events. There was a wellbeing committee, uh, but they did, their, their role really was to run those events. Mm. And yep. tell me, what were the drivers then to actually start to unite those together and actually put a strategy in place? Well, when it, I started, I'm on a two-year contract, and I started on the 1st of October in 2018. Um, so I think three months today, I'm theoretically out of a job. But, um, so, but when I started back then, uh, there'd been some early survey work, so um, uh, there'd been a survey put out amongst the staff and there'd been some focus groups, and that had really got uh, quite a bit of useful information um, in terms of what staff were were wanting or thought would improve their work environment, uh, and that fed into the development of a um, quite a large transformation program. So we ended up with, I think, about 15 or 16 work streams in this transformation program, um, and one of those was um, staff well-being. Uh, so it was a really sort of a positive move um, to have such a clear overt focus on well-being um, that came out of some of that initial surveying. Uh, yep, and then sort of move, we moved on from there really. Uh, but that was the impetus to develop or to um, set up my role for example um, and then to have sort of someone like me really focusing clearly on it for a couple of years. And there were, were there particular factors inside that well-being um, idea that the that I was keen to focus on particularly, or was it just broadly well-being as a general concept? I think at that early stage it was a general concept, really. Uh, so the the information that came back from that survey was sitting on my desk when I arrived on day one. Um, so it hadn't really been unpacked in terms of Ara wanting to focus on specific things. I just had a high level look through it and thought, well, you know, people are really asking for more around their well-being. But certainly at that stage, I don't think anyone really had a clear idea of what that would look like. 
And so what were the first few things that you did in terms of understanding that and starting to develop up a framework? Uh, so I looked through that initial information and picked out a bunch of key themes out of it um, and then really went from there directly into a uh, like a framework and strategy development uh, process. Um, so just sort of cherry picked a bunch of people in, in key leadership roles um, and, and other wellbeing champions, manager of the health centre, you know, people like that and got them in a room and we just went through these themes and um, developed our framework, which um, served us pretty well over the last couple of years. So this is our framework. Um, so the, the part of the middle was really the vision statement. So it's Ihao Aka, Ihao, sorry, Aka, Ihao Tangata, Ihao Ora, which the Aka means um, learning, Tangata means people, and Ora means health. So it's all, that's really, it was described to me as being, um, it's, it's about the essence of bringing together learning and people and health. Um, so that's our sort of our vision statement, I guess, in the middle. So I think it's really, I thought it was really important for us to focus on the different levels because I, um, and when I say that, I mean, you can see on there, there's the myself, my team and my organisation. Um, and I think traditionally, a lot of wellbeing programs like the one that was going on when I arrived are, are more around the self and potentially some around the team and connecting in the team environment. Uh, but I was really keen to get that organisation part in there and you know, start to develop a focus uh, across the, more of a strategic focus in terms of how we embed things that um, positively impact on wellbeing uh, across our business as usual, really. So, so that, you know, when I left in two years, it wasn't just a case of me leaving and things falling over, that it was really infused in what we do. Um, okay, so at the team level, uh, the one thing which we've really focused on strongly is uh, psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and if, you have, if people haven't come across that before, it's really um, whether someone feels safe in their team environment to take an interpersonal risk or to be a bit vulnerable. So that's that's something we've really focused on because what um, the literature says around that, um, and if anyone's keen to look into it further, there's a, if they look up Project Aristotle, um, which is a big Google study, they'll find out quite a bit of information about psychological safety. What the research shows that if you increase psychological safety at a team level, then that's going to increase the, make more of a learning environment at a team level. Um, and if you've got a greater learning environment, uh, then you're likely to be more of a high-performing team. And that's, high-performing teams is one of our four strategic po for the organisation. So that was really quite an important area for us to focus on, and I think that's worked pretty well. Um, at the organisation level, we've really, um, put a lot of time into leadership. So uh, we've run a bunch of uh, workshops for our leaders. Uh, we started those quite early on last year. And um, I think Catherine Jackson's online here somewhere. Mm -hmm. So Catherine was involved in presenting some of that. And for a start, they were really around uh, trying to increase the wellbeing literacy of our leaders, start to develop a language around wellbeing within the organization and also just uh, expose the leaders to some different well-being tools um, and at a very simple level you know things like the five ways to well-being to buddy just different ways of um, of viewing well-being that they might not have come across before and since then we've gone on in, in terms of leadership and we've uh, for example we have a thing called a, um, a valuable conversation which i'm not a great fan of the name but i think the concept's really good it replaced our annual 
uh, appraisals and uh, now these valuable conversations are expected to take place three or four times a year so much more of a sort of intimate conversation between a manager and and their staff member um, and within the templates and the planning for those conversations there's a section on well-being so it's a really it's a way of making a really overt focus in terms of those discussions on well-being um, and another example of that would be a we've got a thing called growing inspiring leaders program a big uh, quite a decent chunk of that is related to psychological safety and sort of other aspects of well-being for our leaders so we've, re we've really put quite a focus on that in terms of upping the our leaders um, awareness and skill sets around well-being it's really helpful andy to understand you know what those processes have been in terms of engaging with leaders tell me when you first rolled this out how open were they to this discussion uh, well, I mentioned Catherine before. Oh, Catherine's probably rolling her eyes if she's out, out there somewhere. Um, we, the, the first one of those leaders' workshops that we uh, ran was just a really unfortunate timing because it was uh, it was on the Tuesday after the Friday mosque attacks in Christchurch. Oh no! Um, poor Catherine had to come along into this room, and uh, yeah, it was quite a it was a really challenging environment. Um, but Catherine handled it amazingly, of course. So from there, I was thinking at the time, oh my God, what a lost opportunity. But, but really we've gone on and we've started to get more and more engagement. I ran a bunch of presentations just before we went into lockdown about leading self uh, resilience, well-being of self and leading your teams. And there was really quite a high level of engagement in that. Uh, and one of the things I've seen during, uh, sort of as we've come out of lockdown and actually to some extent during it on Zoom meetings and things, it's just the, the amount of times that the psychological safety phrase has come up in conversations. So to me, that's a real sign that our, our language and our culture is starting to shift um, to have more of a focus on that. Uh, you know, two years ago, probably most colleagues wouldn't have heard of it or sort of really understood what we meant by it. Mm. And it sounds like because the framework is so well embedded in not only the wellbeing initiatives, the typical ones you might think of, but also your leadership development program, those valuable conversations, it's, it's really well interwoven into the way that you do work at ADA. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, we've, got, we've got a wee way to go in terms of engagement. There's certainly um, th through the um, sort of level four and heading into level three of lockdown, um, I designed a, like a check-in process that we pushed out through our business partners and out to all our, sorry, HR business partners and out to all our um, leaders. And we asked them to go through that uh, check-in process, so one-to-one check-ins. And we got a lot of really amazing information back through that process. And also, I guess the hidden agenda there is just to keep developing the relationships between the managers and their direct reports. But, um, you know, when I look at that sort of process, we could tell pretty easily that there were still some pockets who weren't very engaged, like you'd find anywhere. But, you know, just an increasing, um, I think, as the months go by, there's much more engagement all the time. Tell me, how has the model helped you through COVID-19 in terms of your planning and wellbeing for staff? Just, you can see on the left-hand side there, I've highlighted the four yellow areas in the, in the framework. So they were the four areas that we really decided to sort of knuckle down on um, during lockdown um, and put a stronger focus on. And like I said before, you know, that I ran those workshops for leaders just as we went into lockdown. The, the connect part, um, so that, that example of the wellbeing chickens, 
by managers. That's, you know, that was a really positive example of connection and leadership. So bringing those two together. Uh, in terms of the support and the keep learning, I think I've actually on one of these sessions before, I might have heard someone talking about MH101 as an example. So they're offered by Blueprint for Learning, you know, that, with the one-day MH101 courses. During the um, lockdown, uh, well over 20 of my colleagues have gone through the online version of that. So to me, that's a great way. I've, I've been pushing that, and it's just a great way to, to get into that keep learning space and also link it through to the, the support. So we've now got a bunch of uh, wellbeing champions across the organisation um, you know, who are much more sort of upskilled around uh, having conversations if they're dealing with someone who's um, dealing with mental distress. And um, I'm, I'm following that on. I think in uh, about three weeks, I've got an uh, on-site uh, version of that course, so an on-site workshop with MH101 coming on-site. Um, so really keen to keep pushing that sort of thing. Fantastic. And tell me, what have been some of the challenges through COVID-19 for you and staff at ARTA? I think one of the, one of the main things that I hear about is for our uh, academic staff or our um, teaching staff. And I think when we, when we went into lockdown, it was something like 10 or 12 uh, percent of our courses were set up to be delivered online. Um, which is just a really low number. I kind of raised my eyebrows because I thought, having been through the earthquakes, we might be a bit more prepared than that. But anyway, um, so a pretty low number. So um, within a couple of weeks, that number was up to about 95%. Uh, and those uh, teaching staff have had to do a complete shift around in terms of their focus um, just to deal with the here and the now. So what I'm picking up now is... Um, it's just how exhausted they are and they haven't had time to prepare for semester two. Um, and so they're going to probably have to do that through the mid-year break. So it's just a, a level of intensity that, that I think for a lot of them is not sustainable. Um, and that's why I think, you know, having more people around who've done the MH101 and having more opportunities to, um, to talk freely within and to voice their concerns and how they feel, you know, in, a, in terms of psychological safety, making that more available to them. I think those things will help, although it's still going to be a very challenging uh, rest of the year. And the other thing that I'm kind of picking up more and more is just around the impact on students. And even though it's not directly part of my role, I've just spent this morning trying to um, sort out um, some of our teaching support staff to go and work with teams um, who are basically flagging that their students are really struggling. Um, a lot of anxiety, a lot of kind of tearfulness, and um, so lots of support needed there. So I imagine for the academic staff, that's sort of a double whammy in some ways of, of dealing with their own, um, you know, challenges, whatever that looks like for them, and then being a support person as well for for students. And I suppose that's a topic that that has come up before, hasn't it? Even in terms of well-being, people often in our roles as well-being managers or or specialist consultants. You know, we spend a lot of our time making sure that we're looking after others. What are some of the things for yourself that you've done for your own well-being in this process? Because I imagine it's been a really big uh, project. Uh, yeah, it has been a really big project. And, um, you know, I don't mind sharing that I have um, a history of depression on and off. I've had a couple of major depressive episodes over the years. So I'm, I'm pretty kind of comfortable now with what my triggers are and, being able, and knowing when I'm starting to sort of go down a bit. I'm quite aware of that and I have my 
a toolkit for managing that in, in terms of moderating my workload if I need to. Luckily, I'm in a pretty autonomous role, um, so I can back off if I need to. Um, but I, uh, get, I do something active just about every day, uh, and I did that, carried on with that during the lockdown. Did some pretty bizarre kind of exercise sessions in the garage, um, and <laughs> did a bit of running and cycling, and, um, and when we went to level three, I got out surfing, so that was good. Um, and I made sure I kept on uh, con connecting, because I, uh, I live by myself, so I had the pleasure of my own company for whatever, however long it was, for two months. Um, so, you know, I, I had made sure I had just simple things going on, like Saturday afternoon beers through Zoom, um, that sort of thing. And I get a lot of enjoyment out of learning, so that's another thing I like to do, is just sort of um, not be working the whole time and switch off and learn. In time with my partner and a boy, that sort of stuff. Mm. And I imagine it's, it's, thank you for sharing those and being so open with that. But I think it's such a good example of, as well being people, when we are in such a role of taking care of other people, how important it is to make sure we're looking after our own health and we're still doing those things that are so important because it's so easy, especially when caring or uh, wanting to make sure others have the best support. It's so easy for us to give a lot of ourselves and not leave much left in the tank at the end of the day. It actually reminds me a bit of a, a number of the conversations I had when I was at the CDHB, Canterbury District Health Board, and um, there was such a focus around the patients, and um, you know they used to always refer to a patient-centric approach, and which is which I get. I mean, obviously, because um, I'm a physiotherapist by original training, so I, I get that. But it was uh, it was often quite hard work to try and turn around the thinking to, along the lines of if if your staff aren't in a great place, how can they be fully patient-centric? Um, and so that's, I think at ARA, we're a long way ahead with that. We're, we're really starting to understand that a lot more now, you know, that to be giving the, the best quality education to our students, um, that's not going to happen if your staff are falling over. And I think that's well reflected in the model, you know, that you've developed, that it is, there's those three key parts and it's making sure that, there's all three are integral to how wellbeing's rolled out. I was just thinking of, um, you know, something I have spent a lot of time looking at and reading about is would come under the, on the screen there, the um, heading of design good work systems. So around uh, sort of psychosocial risk management, um, good work design, demand versus control and that sort of thing. So I'm really quite excited at the moment that we're going through a process of looking at how we can allow staff to work more remotely and flexibly um, you know within the kind of confines of our business model uh, but I think that's a that's going to be a really positive move and I just hope we don't lose the momentum with it because we got so much feedback through that check-in process I mentioned just about how positive that experience was for a lot of staff not for all of them obviously some of them had little kids at home and who drove them nuts <laughs> um, but a number of them really valued the autonomy and not the lack of distractions and all the rest of it. And tell me, thinking over the life of the strategy, what have been some of the really great success stories? Well, to me, a lot of the success stories really are more uh, are around collaborations and around things like, um, so they're not really, I do a lot of one-to-one -one work with people. I do a lot, quite a bit of coaching and various uh, support for people who are not in a great space. So there's a lot of really positive things that, I, you know, I, I find that really rewarding. Um, but at a higher level, it's more around things like 
the use of um, the language, the psychological safety language, for example, just hearing that in conversations all over the place. Uh, you know, like, like yesterday, I was at the gym. We've got a gym on site. Um, and one of our managers from the area, which teaches a lot of uh, Maori language courses and Maori cultural courses, uh, he goes to the gym as well. And he's a really quiet guy and he never says a word. But he came up to me and said, look, really worried about my, um, my staff, team of about 10, just what they're dealing with, you know, in terms of their students, um, in terms of the anxiety and the, um, some of the unusual behaviours that they're experiencing. Um, so he just came up and had a word to me and then uh, I've gone away and that was what I was organising this morning. So I'm sure previously he would probably wouldn't have the confidence to come and ask that to me. and Maybe wouldn't even know who I was. So that's a real win for me. You know, the other story is around those MH101, all those colleagues that have gone and done that training. Um, you know, another one is um, this, this first thing this morning, I seem to have a wellbeing comms across the whole organisation. Um, and by the time I came on this call, 15 people had uh, registered for a financial wellbeing session that we're running with ANZ. Yeah, not, not sort of individual one-to-one -one stories, but just stories about uh, how much engagement is, is developed over the year or so. Mm -hmm. And it's such a good example of the story in the gym and that it's that help-seeking behaviour, isn't it? It's people feeling confident and comfortable to be able to say, look, I'm not sure what to do and I can see there's potentially trouble ahead, you know, what do I do and, and how do I, you know, navigate this? What um, sort of things would Arta put in place now using that framework? Yeah, so in that particular case for that leader, um, what I've been organising this morning is um, previously around the time of the, at the first anniversary of the mosque attack, so March 15, um, I worked with uh, one of our student support managers and a counsellor from the health centre um, so we have a health centre on our main campus. Because um, we were starting to hear reports coming through, especially from our English language area, around a number of students who were getting quite upset at that anniversary approaching. Uh, so we'd, the three of us sat down, we developed a workshop that we ran um, a, a number of times for tutors, particularly in that area. Um, so this morning we've just arranged to, um, just basically to revamp that slightly. Uh, so same people, pretty much same resource, and then we can roll it out just in a different context. But the skills are gonna be the same that we're trying to get across to those um, teaching colleagues' skills, and also just um, to update them on, uh, you know, important things like boundaries, you know, what are their, because I, you know, every now and then, um, I hear, hear of people, or our teaching colleagues who are just so invested in the students that they probably go a bit far. So that's an important, kind of concept that we need to get across about where does your role stop and when do you need to hand over you know to a counsellor or seek some other advice so yeah that's that's um, how we're going to help that team out um we've run up until the beginning of this year we've uh, run a number of uh, workshops similar actually to mh101 so uh, we've run them in-house and so the reason why i've been pushing mh101 so much is that i think it's a really well developed product uh, really well tested, it's been presented heaps of times, good facilitators, you know, they have a mental health health professional um, as one facilitator and someone with lived experience of mental health issues dual facilitating. So that's why I've been pushing that. But yeah, previously we did a, uh, a number of things um, in-house around um, upskilling or related to mental health and also de-escalating, that was another workshop, so de-escalating situations where um, students were 
least becoming threatening or uh, very hard, very challenging in terms of their behaviours. It's probably more. I just can't think of it. <laughs> well, I think that actually that de-escalation <laughs> one's a really um, important thing to think about because I guess with mental health, it's really easy to to fall into the trap of either thinking, you know, the two areas we need to sit in are either at the at the kind of really acute end, or or at the the start of what is well-being. But actually, in saying that, there's actually a number of steps along the way that we can upskill leaders, upskill, uh, you know, even team members around you know, what those, those different stages are in terms of de-escalation or, you know, guiding people to support or whatever it is. Mm. Yeah. It's a bit, yeah, a bit of a continuum, isn't it? Mm. Um, at, the more, at the, I guess, lighter end, the more well-being end rather than mental health end, if you want to look at it like that. Um, last year, we put uh, over 600 colleagues through uh, a well-being workshop. And so a two-hour workshop, and again, looking at, I guess the key sort of agenda there was to increase the wellbeing literacy language and introduce them to some tools. Um, but, and tools like uh, growth um, versus fixed mindset, um, a strength, taking a strength-based approach, that sort of thing. Uh, five ways to wellbeing, to whare, uh, so just again to sort of try and lift that level of knowledge across the organisation and embed some new language. So that's just all part of that for me, part of that continuum from the proactive well-being on the one end to the what do you do to sort of more pick up the pieces at the other end. Mm. Fantastic. And tell me, what are some of the measures you use to track progress of the strategy and the model? So at a, a sort of a simple level, I guess I, I have to do board reporting once a month, which is a bane in my life. But anyway, um, have some lead and lag indicators that we report on there. So, for example, um, the number of hits on the health and wellbeing info web page, which was that page I showed you before with the breathing, the breathing bubble. Um, so the number of page hits and the number of users. So that goes, and that's sort of a lead indicator for me in terms of engagement with, because that's the place to go if you want information. Um, attendance at our wellbeing workshops is another one. Uh, number of people attending the on-site uh, physical activity sessions um, and other workshops depending on what we're running like the financial one I mentioned and EAP so area so those sorts of things so that's at a that's the monthly board reporting so not only does that framework kind of set up our strategy with the, the focus on team sorry self team and organization um, but in terms of our well-being survey we've also designed the survey to look at a measure for each of those three things so at the self level we've measured we use the tool called the WHO5, the WHO5, um, which is easy enough to find online. Um, and I'd previously used that at the Canterbury DHB. And, and that's been quite an interesting tool to use. It's just five questions, and you basically you lump the scores together, and you get a score from zero to 25. And for example, you can see that the evidence suggests that people who get seven or less are likely to be experiencing major depression. So you, you can get a real, you know, it's totally confidential at our end. Um, so it's not about trying to identify people who are not in a great spot. It's about, for me, it's been a really useful in terms of generating a conversation and saying, actually, we've got this many people in our workforce, you know, and that are struggling. So it's not happening somewhere else. It's We're part of the community and it's, you know, something we need to be trying to support them with. 
uh, and that WHO5 tool was used by the uh, Public Health Service in Canterbury uh, in a, what's called the Canterbury Wellbeing Survey. So that was really interesting again because we were, we were basically were able to overlay our results over the Canterbury wellbeing results um, and they're virtually identical, um, which was really useful because there'd been a bit quite a bit of talk around about the workload, et cetera, and how wellbeing at Aura was um, you know, worse than anywhere else, all that sort of stuff. So you can set all that aside and say, look, we're just we're in a, just a snapshot of the community. Let's focus on the issue of trying to help people out. So that was the WHO5. At the team level, we used um, a measure of psychological safety uh, that was developed by Amy Edmondson. And if anyone's, so I mentioned before the Google study, Project Aristotle, and Amy Edmondson's written a book um, called Fearless Organizations, which, um, which I read last year, which really got me kind of honed in on this. Um, so that's seven questions, and we've been able to survey that. Uh, we had about a 72% response rate across our staff, so about 780 responses, so a good robust sort of response. Um, and we were able to go, to go back to, to, to teams and just um, basically reflect their results back to them, to the managers and the teams, and um, start a discussion about how they could try and improve the level of psychological safety. So that's, that was the team assessment. And then the third part is the uh, measuring at an organisation level. And for that, we used a thing called the PSC-12, uh, which is a bit of a mouthful. It's um, Psychosocial Safety Climate, um, 12 question survey tool. And I was a bit worried that that might kind of put people off because it's quite a long list of questions, 12 questions. But um, as I said, we had a good response rate. Uh, PSC-12 measures, so it's, it's a tool for reflecting on senior management and their approach to psychological health and safety in the organization. So you're asking your workforce to comment on what do you think of, of how your very senior managers are dealing with psychological health and safety. So I, I take my head off to our executive team for actually doing it, because I'm sure a lot wouldn't, because <laughs> it can make them a bit feel a bit vulnerable, I'd imagine. But I think that's just an indication that they're quite invested in this. Uh, and we didn't re report that information back to the workforce. Um, that was all set out in the survey that the WHO5 and the psych safety results would be fed back to teams and the PSC12 would be fed to the executive team and to our health safety wellbeing leadership group, which is our kind of governance group for health safety and wellbeing. Um, and that painted a really interesting picture, which I won't go into really any more than to say that you know, there had to be some sort of follow-up actions at a really senior level, partly based on what that showed. Um, kind of interesting. It was really interesting to see. We we heat mapped it, so we put the results in a you know green, amber, red. So really quite an interesting uh, measure. And if, if anyone's interested in looking into that, the research, the leading kind of researcher for that is a woman, Maureen Dollard. Uh, who's in Australia, and that tool is also used as part of the uh, New Zealand Workplace Barometer assessment that's run out of Massey University. Uh, I think the first one was in 2018. Uh, so their report's online, so we were able to do a rough comparison of their 2018 results to ours. And I was just in touch with them yesterday, and 
2019 results aren't far away. So thank you for sharing those. And I, I imagine, yes, as you said, that um, the PSC 12 must have been uh, such an interesting one to be able to roll out with those senior leaders because it really highlights where that key decision-making, where that key cultural change needs to happen. Uh, and yep. there's a fair amount of trust that obviously goes into that process too from workers to provide that feedback and then feel like it's going to be useful uh, in terms of how it was received as well. And so, you know, how, what was kind of the next steps after that? Um, as I kind of alluded to before, I think that information was part of, you know, part of some sort of decisions that were made at the higher level. But I'll leave it at that. Um, in terms of uh, sort of uh, developing a work plan out of that, what we decided to do was actually to, to hold it. Um, and the reason being, there's some really valid stuff there that we could have gone after, but the reason being that we've just got too much going on. Uh, and I think um, in the end, that was my recommendation and I'm really glad that they went with it. Uh, because we've got, we, we were sort of coming out of all that mosque attack stuff for a start. You know, that carried on for months last year in terms of the disruption for us. Um, and then we've got the um, the ROVE, so the Review of Vocational Education. So that's what I mentioned at the start about all the politics coming together into one. Um, and so that's going to, that's just already starting to cause a lot of disruption, but it's only going to get worse. And we're also in the middle of that transformation program that I mentioned. Um, so I think it was actually a really sound decision not to develop another kind of a change work stream. Um, so we're going to reassess. We've got um, a couple of months we're re doing another annual survey. So we'll look at those again and just see if we're in a place where we want to um, sort of follow up more directly about some of the issues raised there. Awesome. That sounds like quite a, yes, I, I really like that idea of actually looking not only at this piece of work, but actually what are the other things going on? Because as you said, there's kind of a, a capacity thing, isn't there, around how much people can actually take on, digest, reflect, uh, and start mm. to make changes where that's needed. Looking ahead, what, what's ahead for the next sort of 12 months for ADA in terms of well-being? Aside from this, this piece here, are there a couple of kind of big projects ahead or big focus areas, or is it really now about embedding those um, key initiatives down? Yeah, I think it's largely around the latter. I think it's around embedding it. I don't know if I mentioned, you know, we've got a group of about 25 wellbeing champions. Um, so I'm saying this in the, con in the context, really, that for three months' time, I will have moved on. There's going to be a bit of a restructure in terms of the role, so they're not replacing my role. Uh, anyway, long story, but so really for me, it's about setting, just setting things up to continue as they are and to keep really embedded kind of a focus on wellbeing and not not losing any focus on some of these key initiatives that we've got going on. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Wellness Champions Network, head along to myhealthrevolution.co.nz and follow the links to subscribe. If you're in the network, thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.